Hey, you're listening to Cut for Time, a podcast from Faith Church located on the north side of Indianapolis. My name is Claire Kingsley. Each week, I'll sit down with one of our preaching pastors to discuss their Sunday sermon. Cut for Time is a look behind the scenes of sermon preparation, and they'll share with us a few things that we didn't hear from the sermon on Sunday. Thanks for listening. Hey, Joey, it's Memorial Day, and we're recording Cup for Time, and it doesn't bother me one bit that we're working on Memorial Day because I'm excited to be able to talk to you about your sermon on Sunday. Well, thanks, man. I mean, we got so much good, so many good questions, so much good interaction uh, from people that I, I'm, I was, uh, you know, watching the questions coming in going, oh, man, oh, that's so good. That's so good. I can't wait to talk about these. Yes, I have notifications um, when on my phone for when people do text in and I get them so I can respond quickly if necessary, right? And um, as they were coming in, it was really exciting to just see people engaging and people responding. And that's the whole point. That's why we're doing this. So I hope for it continues sure. for the next few weeks as well. Um, but we've got quite a few questions to cover and who knows how long this is going to be, but we're not going to worry about time. We're just going to... Dive yeah, in. that's right. This let's is we're, we're not cutting any of this for time. We're just queuing R in it. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So, Joey, the first one I think that would be easiest for you to tackle um, is some someone, but I'm sure lots of people would like to know how did you come around to choosing to use the word soul rather than spirit in your message, and are those interchangeable? Right. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I kept saying we're we're embodied souls, we're body and soul. I think I might have said at one point that we are you know, you can look at it as either embodied souls or inspirited bodies. Um, so soul and spirit, two different things, or, or I should say two different words in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. New Testament or Old Testament, there's the two words, nefesh, which is usually translated soul and ruach, which is usually translated spirit. But in Old Testament usages, like a thousand times, they clearly overlap, right? They're, they seem to be used almost interchangeably and not necessarily talking about different parts of a human being, uh, but used to refer to uh, either the whole person or just the immaterial part of a person. And uh, it, the same thing happens in the New Testament with the words psyche, which is usually translated soul and pneuma, which is usually translated spirit. They also overlap. What's interesting about the words is that in both testaments, ruach in Hebrew and uh, and pneuma in uh, Greek, both have this sense of like movement. Sometimes they're used in impersonal ways to talk about the wind or breath or something like that. They have this sense of movement or animation. Um, animus, also Latin for soul or spirit. Um, so that they have the sense of movement, whereas the soul words, nefesh or psyche, have a sense of more like substance, mm. less movement, more substance. So um, to kind of, I chose soul, I suppose, because body and soul kind of rolls off the tongue a little better than body and spirit. Body and soul also conforms to our catechism that we use. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what is our only hope in life and death that we belong body and soul? to yeah. God, our Father, and to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So um, not a super technical theological reason why I chose soul, except body and soul sounds good, and better than body and spirit. And uh, it, it, the, the words seem to be synonymously used uh, throughout sure. the scriptures. All right. So Joey, then do animals have souls? And will they, will they be in heaven? Could we yes. see animals in heaven? Okay. So do animals have souls? Yes. Let me explain what I mean by that. Okay. I'm already anything, so intrigued. It's not what I was expecting you to say. You're expecting me to say no. Okay. So anything that moves or grows or thinks and reasons has soul, a soul. Um, even our word animal um, comes from a word meaning soul in Latin, um, meaning self-moving. So here, here's the thing. Um, vegetables plants have a kind of soul that is limited in its capacities it has only vegetative capacity which means all it can do is respond uh, essentially um passive it can only grow mm -hmm. right so a plant grows in response to sunlight water uh, oxygen that sort of thing right animals have both a have a soul that has both a vegetative aspect they grow in response 
but also has a, a sensing aspect. So they can both sense what is coming from the outside of them and can move in response to it. Sure, yeah. So animals have a soul with both a vegetative and a sensitive aspect, and that sensitive aspect both uh, understands what's coming from the outside world and can move itself in response to that. Um, humans have a, a soul with a vegetative aspect. We grow naturally through the consumption of you know, food. Uh, we can sense what's coming from the outside and move in response to that, move towards it or away from it or something like that. Uh, but we also have a, a reason, a reasonable aspect to our souls that is both intellectual, we can think about the things that we're doing, and appetitive, we can desire and respond, uh, we can will and choose, things like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so three different sort of kinds of of souls. So when you say, do animals have souls? If the question is, do animals have the same kind of soul as human beings? Then the answer is no. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do they have a soul? Yes. Now the, the question behind the question is always, and maybe it was in the question, like, will animals be in heaven? Right. Well, it depends on what you think heaven is. If you think heaven is a state of disembodied spiritual only, sort of disembodied souls or spirits worshiping God only in some spiritual realm mm -hmm. well then a, a, a the kind of soul that an animal has is not in that sense uh that it can't exist on its own um like a human soul but human souls aren't intended to exist on their own either we're embodied souls now and in the future in redemption you know redemption mm -hmm. is not freeing us from these bodies so we can float off somewhere and, and you know play harps on clouds or something like that and heaven is not some future um, state of pure spirituality or pure immateriality. It is redeemed, recreated, restored materiality. It is earth made the way it is supposed to be. So if earth is made the way it is supposed to be, and before the fall, there were plants, there were animals, there were humans, all three of these sort of types, right? Then we would expect in a restored, redeemed creation, there will be plants, animals, and humans. Mm -hmm. Now, do, do the animals we know today continue to exist in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, in this redeemed state? Um, it's up for debate. Some people say, nope. Others, yes, absolutely. Um, where I tend to fall on this is because, you know, because I believe that, that redemption is this world made the way it is supposed to be. And one of the things our souls, our souls, our, you know, we long for is some sort of communion with non-human creatures, animals. Um, it's why we have pets. It's why we are so sensitive to animals around us. We, we want to commune with them. I, I think that heaven in, in the future state will be, that there will be our animals, our pets, the animals we have known in this life will be there and we will actually know them as if for the first time, like know them as they really are, not just mm -hmm. as they've been presented to us in this fallen world. So awesome. short answer, yes. <laughs> long answer rewind and come back yes no, no no i really appreciate your perspective and um is this a major or a minor thing joey it's, this is a minor thing okay. this is a minor thing certainly people disagree um yeah. i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna go to the stake on it but um there are other things that we're gonna we're about to talk about that are more major and so yes yeah i just wanted yeah, yeah, to yeah. be able to clarify like <laughs> hey if we disagree here it's okay yeah, um, but I mean, the questions I think coming from you know the uh, someone the heart of someone who's feels very compassionately about animals, and that's a that is a God designed, God given. We are we are supposed to commune with non human creation, mm -hmm, and the mm -hmm. desire for that to be there in the new heavens and the new earth is, I think, a desire that will be satisfied. Yeah. Thanks. You know, um, when my parents' dog passed away, my mom was so sad and she was like, I'll see him in heaven. And I think I was like, I'm probably not. <laughs> and now I'm like, shoot, I wish I could rewind and uh, have this conversation with you so I could respond probably more appropriately. With so when her. your mom said that, you would have now said, well, what do you mean by heaven, mom? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, are you going to heaven? That's the more important question. So anyways, okay, moving on. Moving on. All right, so um, here's a great one, Joey. If our reasoning for marriage between a man and a woman is based off of reproductive potential, like you said, mm -hmm. um, like on its own, a male reproductive system and a female reproductive system is only half of what 
is entirely necessary right. to be able to create something new, right? And so if we're saying that that is like our basis for a man and a woman, not two men or not two women, how does that maybe apply to somebody with infertility or maybe an older couple who gets married and don't intend on having children mm-hmm. for one reason or another? Yeah, no, it's a really, really good question. I, I wish I had taken more time to to preemptively answer that question. Um, some listeners may know, some may not know that infertility is part of um, our personal story. My wife and I, we we can't have kids without significant technological medical intervention. You know, we have one daughter who's now eleven, and uh, we couldn't have her without using artificial reproductive technologies. Um, and where we are in our lives right now because of different surgeries is we can't, we, we physically cannot uh, bear or carry children together. Mm -hmm. So, um, so would Jesus say that our marriage is like not a real marriage because it doesn't have the, um, it can't actually produce a child through organic bodily union? No, I don't think so. Um, here's why. Okay. So to back up a little bit in the explanation here, because, um, we believe, uh, I believe, I believe Jesus believed that, that marriage is a comprehensive union. It is a union of two in all aspects. That includes organic bodily union. And an organic bodily union or a comprehensive bodily union can only happen when both, so, so both elements are necessary for a natural biological end to be, um, to be achieved, which in this case, reproduction, right? Okay, so uh, that union, the coming together in sex, um, naturally joins the couple together in this comprehensive way, whether or not the end goal, or I shouldn't say the, not goal in the sense of like, this is why you're doing it, but the, the, that sort of end state of procreation occurs, whether it can occur or does occur. Uh, for one, people aren't responsible, you know, husband and wife aren't responsible for what happens outside of their control hours after the sexual act. They, you know, they have no control over whether or not an egg is actually fertilized, actually implants, actually grows, is actually born as a child, right? Um, so to say then that um, if you don't have control, you know, you have to have, um, reproduction has to work in order for it to be a true marriage to say, you, well, you have to have some sort of control over every step along the way. Um, you know, another, um, analogy I suppose you could use for it is, um, again, this is real romantic ways of talking about marriage and sex, right? Um, think of it as any other bodily system. If your heart is, you know, pumping blood, taking oxygen, uh, infusing the oxygen, the blood with the oxygen, and then pumping it back to the parts of your body that need, you know, oxygenated blood and all that is keeping all of this moving. I really hope I'm describing this accurately, or my eighth grade um, science teacher is going to be, biology teacher is going to be real mad at me, as well as all the doctors <laughs> at church. <laughs> um, whether or not that heart is functioning properly or 100% efficiently doesn't make that, that um, organic, um, what's the word I'm looking for, that sort of organic system, that biological system, um, you know, more true or less true. Mm-hmm. Not sure if this is really helping here, but um, what, what I'm trying to get at is whether or not the couple is infertile, whether or not the couple intends to have children, whether they're postmenopausal, whether they don't want to have children, whether they can't have children for one reason or another or can't conceive, it doesn't change the fact that that bodily union is itself still oriented towards that end goal in potentiality, even if it cannot in actuality achieve that end goal. There is no analogous way for two males or two females to be united organically towards that reproductive end. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have all the, the right systems for it to work. Mm-hmm. So if a marriage is the comprehensive union of, among other things, bodies, then that comprehensive union has to be oriented towards an, a at least a potentially achievable end. Okay, so when you talk about um, or like when you're processing 
preaching this four-part series. Mm-hmm. And you know you're going to need to be able to justify or possibly convince some people um, that marriage, true marriage can only happen between a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you went through a lot of different ways that people um, justify that in the Bible. And you focused on the physical reproductive system saying this is created by God for a purpose mm-hmm. it's clearly meant to fit together and go together this way mm-hmm. um was were there other ways that you considered also expanding that part of like your justification for teaching sure. people um that no we don't see union between two men or two women as um union designed by God Right, right. Yeah, there are, of course, there's other ways um, to justify it. And, and, and one is to say, hey, this is what, you know, God says it, but it's simplistic, right? God says it, I believe it, that settles it, right? You know, you go to Romans 1, and you're like, look, here, here's what's very clear. Um, you can go to other passages and say, here's what's very clear. Um, the reason I went the direction I did is because we have tended in the church the last 50, 60, 70 years or, or more to have adopted the romantic definition of marriage and not the conjoining definition of marriage, the comprehensive covenantal definition, and then have taken the romantic definition and said, well, but God says it only apply, you know, you can only do that if you're a male and a female and it needs to be just the two of you and for life. But there's nothing inherent in the romantic definition that logically argues that it needs to be permanent exclusive or between a male and a female mm-hmm. so it's it's when we when we go when we tend what we have tended to do is go to scripture and and baptize the romantic definition and try to put scriptural limits on it instead of actually looking at how does what is what's assumed and what does scripture assume is true about a marriage and picture as a covenant as a comprehensive union before you know, and and then work out those implications. Um, so I wanted to go back definitionally to what a marriage actually is, instead of taking the wrong definition of a marriage and just saying louder and more forcefully. But God says it can only be mm-hmm. this way yeah. or that way. Okay. So we've got um, a few questions that are similar in nature because um, they refer to. Um, like the culture of the Old Testament, the New Testament, Mm, Jewish mm -hmm. culture, and then our culture today, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to kind of group these questions. I'll still ask them individually, but they have this idea in common of when what the Bible has to say about this topic as um, instructional for our lives because it matters regardless of the culture, and when was it purely just a cultural teaching? Um, So let's dive in there. This person said, I know and believe what you're saying about a man and a woman together about this being God's plan is true. Um, But could you explain more why you're interpreting scripture that is truly God's design for all people in all circumstances and all generations, not just a temporary cultural artifact like head covering instructions or church leadership roles for women in the church. In other words, um, when we're reading the Bible, how can we know that something we're reading is unique to the time period versus God's specific plan for flourishing and actually talking specifically also about sexual intimacy being one of those. Yeah. Wow. Um, so it's a huge question. I'm going to take just uh, a, a very brief uh, response to it. First is how do I know this is God's plan for all times, generations, etc. cetera. Um, the way I would answer that question is saying, because all of that, teaching all came from before the fall, right? It all came before sin entered the world and before, um, you know, what we get in Genesis three of like the male is going to try and dominate the female and and all of those, you know, interactions (laughs) or all the implications that come out of that later, right? So Mm -hmm. Genesis one, Genesis two, all pre-fall, this is the created state, the ideal created state. So this is what a marriage um, ideally is to be now some of those those other questions about uh is this is this you know um part of just the time period like head coverings or is it for you know all time like that is probably the biggest question surrounding that 
um, or the biggest debate surrounding that question about men's and women's roles, right? right? So the question was asked about um, leadership in the church, leadership in the home, right? Is that is that inherently baked into the created order pre-fall, or is that a post-fall um, accommodation to sin? Yeah. So, hey, things are bad. So the best way to to work your way through it is like this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, good theologians are going to debate either side of that issue. Um, so I don't know that I can answer it very well in <laughs> thirty to sixty seconds. Um, the basic question I think was, how do I know? right? How do I know? And the, the best way I can say, how do I know is, is read it in context. So the head coverings thing, read it in context, but also read it in the context of how the church has talked about it throughout history. So if you show up at a church and you're like, um, all the women here aren't wearing head coverings, but it's very clear that Paul says women are supposed to wear head coverings. Um, then you kind of ask somebody and say, so why do we not do this? And have a, a longer conversation about that. Okay, it I don't know if I just thing. dodged that question or or not. But. No, I mean the first part of your answer, just saying, "Hey, this is God's created design and order for flourishing," because it happened before the fall. Like that is very helpful to know. Um, and I mean, anything that comes after is really it is difficult to interpret because you also are considering the type of scripture you're reading, like mm-hmm. the type yep. of literature that you're reading and the yep. context is written and some things are prescriptive or descriptive. And it's, I mean, like there are so many different things that you could uh, work your way through figuring out, mm-hmm. is this, is this a major or is this a minor? Is right. this a preference or is this a requirement? And, you know, we tend to forget, I think, when we're reading the New Testament, especially, uh, well, both, but especially with the New Testament, we tend to forget that it is written to not just one specific culture, but many different specific cultures and situations. Each of these letters in different places and and different questions are happening. There's different movements among um, gender issues and and what it means to be ideally male, ideally female, and all that stuff. We kind of sort of read it as if it's all just one sort of amalgamated culture that can easily be described um, and that we easily resonate with without without really ever th- needing to think about it, you know. If, if we if scripture had instead been written to say 17th century French nobility, and we we would read things and go, you know, we don't live in 17th century France, nor are we nobles. We should probably really make sure we understand that culture. So that and that language and the way words are used, so that we can understand like what is what is being talked about here when it says head coverings, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. none of us are wearing the wigs and the coifs and all the whatever of 17th sure. century French nobility, right? So we would be like, mm, what does he mean by head coverings? Um, problem is, we're like, oh no, they're basically just like us, right? Back then, and so we know, you know, head coverings, hats, right? Or you have to have a scarf on your hair. It's like, nah, there's. We should be to be good exegetes of these letters, we, we have to be uh, cultural anthropologists and really work really hard to understand what's going on in the world of those who are hearing these, you know, receiving these letters for the first time in order to understand what better what's being said. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people who say, no, it's simple. You know what? The Bible just says, like, right. well, yeah, but it says to a specific people in a specific place at a specific time with specific cultural assumptions. And if you don't know those, then you don't know what it's saying. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So read more, think harder. I guess that's my answer. <laughs> okay, that's good. It's being recorded. Great. Um, question just curious Mm -hmm. um moving forward do we continue to talk more about the debate between like same-sex marriage and stuff like that or is this like the end of it it'll come up again in the divorce one for sure okay Okay. um i just feel like there probably are a lot more questions around that space Mm -hmm. and we can't get into them all now but i wanted Mm -hmm. to make sure there's an opportunity for people to still submit stuff like that Mm -hmm. so okay All right. 
All right, so in this same idea of like what's culturally appropriate and is, was God okay with things in the Old Testament that he's not okay with now? Like have mm, uh, God's mm-hmm. rules changed? Have right. our standards changed? Um, do we have higher standards today? Because in the Old Testament, God was seemed permissive of men having multiple wives. Even heroes of the faith had multiple wives. Um, and it's surprising that that didn't need to be called out or... I don't know. Was mm-hmm. that justified? Um, or what about the rule for carrying on the lineage of a man who has died and the wife needs to then sleep with her brother-in-law? Um, if sex was always as special, like you explained how um, holy and special sex should be to us today. Mm-hmm. If it was that special to people in the Old Testament, then how should we think about these types of topics? So just another easy question. Okay. <laughs> no big deal. This is easy pitch. Yeah. That was a real softball of a question there. Um, okay. <laughs> a couple um a couple of thoughts. One, again, in Genesis 1 and 2, we get the pre-fall ideal of what marriage is. In Genesis 3 until today, we get in scripture sort of real pictures of what a fallen sexuality in a fallen sexual culture looks like different places in different times in some of those places and times um polygamy uh was a sort of a accepted part of the culture and even in scripture it seems like god doesn't condemn it to the same extent that we would want him to mm-hmm. right um you know any any good statistician would tell you it's it that a thing happens is not so significant as the frequency at which a thing happens. So to say, we have a couple of stories in the Old Testament about uh, polygamy. We've got David, we've got Solomon, you know, we've got Abraham and, and his pretending his wife's a sister, and we've got, you know, all this stuff. Um, but the stories are limited. It's, you know, we're never shown as if like every single man has multiple wives. Um, so the stories are limited and the stories are also, it's never cast in a good light. Like it's the consequences of multiple spouses. It is never good. It's never held up as like, and this is even, you know, one wife is great. Three wives is awesome. Right. It's never, it's never presented that way. It's always leads to family breakdown and problems. Now, one of the reasons that we, we really struggle with why didn't God like shut that down? is because we have a very individualistic sort of, you know, we are atomized individuals, fully separated from everyone else and fully autonomous, especially in the Old Testament. um, Well, significantly in the New Testament as well, the cultures were much more uh, communal oriented and family oriented. And so they're sort of natural, though fallen ways of looking at, well, how do you in some instances care for care for women if men, if there aren't enough men to go around is, well, you marry multiple women. Um, It was a fallen way of expressing sexuality, but also a fallen way of expressing um, some good things like caring for people who, you know, who need to be cared for. Um, We're, we're, we're way, we're very quick at saying that that should have really been, you know, shut down because, we're individualistic. We're not thinking community-oriented way in community-oriented ways. We're thinking in individual-oriented ways. That that's wrong. It's wrong and should have been stopped. Well, tolerance or forbearance on God's part doesn't necessarily mean acceptance, mm-hmm. right? Just because God tolerates a thing doesn't mean He's okay with a thing. You can make the analogy to any sort of parent with their kids, um, especially when their kids are at different ages, you may tolerate things you're not okay with because um, for one reason or another, you know, it's in that kid's best interest not to confront it at that particular time or in a specific way or something like that. Sure. Um, so the multiple spouses, the multiple wives part, uh, you know, stories in the Old Testament um, are, are never there so that we can, for us to look at them and be like, oh man, I wish I had that. But to say, God even chose to use people who were so messed up in these ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and he chose to use them and bring this full and final redemption in Jesus through all of these people and these stories and these families that we would look at today and go, no, that's, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. On the flips, you know, I'd say on the flip side, someone from that culture would look at our culture and say, God, why do you not shut down, you know, even these, uh, these people who say they're following you, but are having, you know, are serial monogamous or are in multiple sexual relationships at a time or all these other things. They, they're doing, we're doing the same thing just without the commitment to actually care for the, the whole of the person. Um, mm -hmm. So. You're sure you're going to dig into that more when you talk about like, uh, what Jesus means when he says like anyone who lusts in the heart. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's one thing to be like, Oh, look at that person. They're cheating on their, like on their spouse. And that's very obvious, um, versus matters of the heart are, um, much more easily hidden and yes. less easily seen. And so, yeah, Oof. going easy on us. No. <laughs> yeah. This is really easy stuff, right? Yeah. Um, okay. So similar, one last similar question. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that it briefly that men and women were created equal. Women weren't an afterthought. Um, they weren't like, oh, it's a second version of a human. This looks a little bit different, right? Um, right. But created equally with a purpose that only together can be reflective of God's true character. How does that connect to the male-dominated Jewish understanding when the rules of elders and deacons in the New Testament were male-dominated and women, in Jesus's time, women were second. They were not seen as first-class citizens and right. their value was not seen um, as clearly. Yeah. Oh, man. Great question. So um, part of the, the struggle with uh, answering this question well is the differing perspectives on um, if, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, if the idea of male headship or, or, you know, male authority, female passivity, if that is inherent pre-creation or pre-fall in creation, inherent in creation, um, that this is the order of things, or if that is a post-fall adaptation to a, a fallen and sinful world, you'll find, um, those on the, the more um, equalitarian side um, saying, you know, even in this post-fall context, men and women are essentially equal and have equal roles um, in church and in the home uh, will say that, that any sort of hierarchy is a post-fall creation. And as we, cre as we attempt to create uh, communities that reflect more what the world will be in the redemptive future, then we would move ourselves more towards an equalitarian perspective on both, you know, essential being and roles. Uh, on the flip side, um, those who, who believe that the, the hierarchical nature is baked into creation of male and female um, will, will tend to land more in a complementarian uh, or complementary perspective, which would say, ontological equality, equality of being, that in, in their essence, male and female are equal, always equal, but that there is, there is in God's economy, a differentiation of roles. Um, and there is a differentiation in hierarchy. Um, part of the problem with this conversation is that it has almost entirely taken place within the context of, of power, hierarchy, decision-making ability, things like that, not in the context of a, um, of a, of a mutual yeah. cooperation towards a, a chosen end or goal. Um, some complementarians are going, you know, some, some, I should say some equalitarians or egalitarians are going way too far on one side of, of even flipping it and saying, no, men and women are not ontologically equal. Women are superior, you know, sort of an overcorrection to a very fallen patriarchal view that men are, mm -hmm. you know, up here in, in value and women are of lower value. I was very careful to say men and women are of equal value, that we believe that at Faith Church. Now, are men and women, uh, do they have equally assigned roles? Um, are the roles different but complementary or are all the roles the same? Uh, that's room for debate at Faith. Now, you obviously, you have to choose how you're going to you know, run an organization like a church. And um, so Faith has made some specific uh, decisions. And within our denomination, we're more complementarian in that sense. Um, but that, that doesn't change that the, the fact that men and women are essentially and ontologically equal.
equal in value, equal in being. Um, so I was saying, you know, egalitarian will tend to go too far in one di direction. Complementarian is also tending to go too far in another direction of even arguing that this hierarchical understanding of male and female is so baked into creation before the fall that it's even part of um, the Trinity itself, that the son is eternally subordinate to the father. Um, that's a view that was condemned as heretical 1600 years ago, uh, but otherwise orthodox complementarians are trying to put hierarchy into the Trinity in order to give extra weight or extra uh, justification to a hierarchical understanding of mm -hmm. male and mm -hmm. female. It's mm -hmm. going too far, right? Um, I think good Christians should be able to debate and discuss uh, without trying to change the nature of God or trying to devalue aspects of humanity. We should be able to debate and discuss, well, how should we understand this, these passages, and where does uh, where does this this sense of hierarchical um, order come in? Is that a is that a response, you know, a fallen response to a fallen world? Or is that an attempt to work out in a fallen world sort of a pre-fall um, hierarchy? Obviously, with all of that, you can tell I'm dodging the question. I'm not giving a solid answer to the question because I would rather we debate it and discuss it um, than to simply say, well, yep, this is the way it is. So you know what? Ignore anybody who disagrees with you. Okay, so what I hear you saying is that um, for you and for Faith Church, it's not a major like being um, agreeing on all everyone needing to agree in complementarian thinking or egalitarian thinking. This is a minor right, thing. Right. We major on the yeah. majors, we minor on the minors. Okay. I would say it's okay to disagree. Yep. It is a theological, exactly. It's a theological minor in my, in my view. Um, egalitarian, uh, <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble. Um, there are quite a few egalitarians and quite a few complementarians who will at least agree this is a theological minor, but then disagree with the way it's actually worked out practically. And, that, and that's the problem is unlike our view of the end times, you know, disagreeing on this actually changes the way you organize your church. Um, and so there are some who would say, yeah, it's a minor. That's why we should have women pastors and others who are saying it's a minor. That's why we should not offend anyone and not have women pastors. And it's like, I wish obviously that in, I wish the, you know, so let me put it this way. We, we are structurally mm -hmm. complementarian and the egalitarians who worship at faith are incredibly gracious to live and operate and worship within sure. that structure. I think that means the complementarians at faith should be just as gracious and loving and submissive to their egalitarian brothers and sisters as the egalitarians are to the complementarian ones in this structure. Um, and not, you know, flip out or freak out when things are pushed beyond yeah, what they wow. may be comfortable with in an, in an attempt to be biblical, uh, you sure. know, thoroughgoingly biblical in how we yeah, apply I appreciate these questions. That. I mean, that was very well said. And I should say, yeah. I see a lot of that at faith. It's one of the things I love about our churches. I see a lot of that. I see egalitarians who say, hey, I think women should be in leadership here, but you know what? It's not worth it's not worth arguing over. And I see complementarians who say, like, I really don't think women should be teaching Sunday school, but you know what? They're some of our best teachers. And I'm really mm -hmm. glad they're teaching. Right. It's I love it. Great. All right. So I've got one last question for you, Joey. I have no idea where we're on for time, but yes. I'm not concerned. So here we go. Um, so you described the ideal uh what sexual intimacy should look like within a marriage, that it is covenantal intimacy. It's not an exchange. Um, mm -hmm. However, uh, sin mm -hmm. enters our marriages. It enters the space of physical intimacy. What if someone is hearing um, this message on Sunday and they just still think, man, I mean, we have sex within marriage and still our sexual relationship is not this, um, safe or um i don't feel cherished in the um or it's not holy the way you're describing what if their experience is still more mm -hmm. of an exchange like i feel like i have to do this for my partner or i might not be super comfortable with this but we're gonna 
do it this way because you say this is what it means to love you well. Um, it is seemingly more contractual. Or what if someone's experience isn't feeling mm-hmm. um, naked and unashamed, but instead um, they don't feel safe to be vulnerable in that way with their partner? Um, what, do, what would you have to say? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's a really important question. A really important question. Um, first, I would say, if you feel unsafe in your relationship, um, you're being forced to do things that you aren't comfortable with, or you don't want to do, and you can't say no for one reason or another. I mean, we're bordering on abuse. And you should absolutely talk to a trained and professional Christian counselor who can help uh, think through, is what I'm experiencing actually, you know, sexual abuse? I mean, marital rape is a real thing. Um, And just because you're married doesn't mean that one spouse gets to tell the other one, this is what we're doing right now. Remember how I said a marriage is a comprehensive union of not just bodies, but wills, spirits, minds. There has to be an agreement across all of those things in order for sex within the marriage to actually be this covenant recommitment renewal service, this covenant Mm -hmm. glue that we talked about. I cannot, no husband, no wife can go to their spouse and say, my will wins right now. And so you will do what I want you to do. Um, Replacing one person's will with the other is a violation of the covenant. Um, And it is no longer a one flesh covenant because it is no longer a union of wills or a union of minds. Um, And so uh, back to my earlier statement there, if you are in any way feeling unsafe, talk to a a professional counselor. And, you know, we, we recommend, like we do a lot of work with crosswinds here in town with a counseling center at the crossing. Um, Both are, are great counseling centers where you can get good, um, Christian counseling mm-hmm. on this topic. Mm-hmm. So I want to say that first. Second, I want to acknowledge that, yeah, sin has entered all of our relationships. And so um, because sin has entered even our married sexual relationships, there are going to be times where um, one or both spouses feels mm-hmm. used or pressured. Um, that it happens again is significant, but how frequently it happens is much more significant. If this is a constant pattern or consistent pattern, if especially if it's a pattern that has been discussed and not addressed, this is a, a pattern that you know you've brought up or someone has brought up with their spouse and said, "I don't like the way we feel. I I don't feel naked and unashamed when I'm with you. I feel like my vulnerability is being taken advantage of." Right? If you've had that conversation and nothing changes, again. I think you need to talk with a professional counselor over a, you know, a number of conversations to dig into that and dig into it. Why? Um, All of that is kind of said to the person who is experiencing being taken advantage of or pressured into being more vulnerable than they actually feel. Um, they're the ones who are actually listening to the answer to this question. Yeah. So what I'll say next to the person who is doing the pressuring has probably turned this off already and isn't actually listening, unfortunately. Um, but if you're the one doing the pressuring, that is evidence in your own heart and mind that you view sex primarily as uh, something that you give or something that you get in order to achieve something else, that it mm-hmm. is about taking, not about giving. Right. And ideally, uh, the scriptural ideal, the biblical ideal for sex is that it is mutual self-giving and self-sharing in this open vulnerability, that it is not about taking something from the other person. Um, So the person who is taking needs to stop taking and actually find out from their spouse what sexual giving Mm -hmm. looks like instead of taking. Uh, I really, I highly recommend, there's a, a book that came out in the last year or two called The Great Sex Rescue. Um, I think the author's last name is uh, Gregory or Gregoire or something like that. I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, she does a, a really good and really eye-opening way of going, going back through all of our Christian sort of books about sex in the last 30 or 40 years and pointing out the preponderance of bad teaching 
on this topic, right? That like men are sexual animals who can't ever um, control themselves. And so their, their wives, like their wives whole responsibility is either to, you know, please their wives or please their husband sexually so that they don't go try to find that somewhere else. Um, and to make sure that they're modest and that they get everybody else to be modest mm-hmm. so that their husbands aren't tempted, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's ridiculous. If I had a son, I would not want him to grow up thinking that, well, can't control it. So better get married and just find somebody who's going to, you know, help me control myself for me. And uh, any woman who uh, doesn't dress modestly is, you know, trying to Mm -hmm. take me down or something like that. Anyway, I'm going to go off on a tangent. So I'll just come back to, I I think that that book is really helpful for understanding how we have shaped this whole conversation into uh, in evangelicalism, we have made sex contractual and we have made it all about women yeah. needing to meet men's needs. Not the way it's supposed to be. So highly recommend that. Okay. So can I just ask this question? Yeah. There are a lot of ways to love your spouse. Some people feel, you know, let's just say with the five love languages, some people say that they feel more loved with words of affirmation or gifts or physical touch. So is it appropriate for one mm-hmm. of the people in the marriage to say, hey, I will feel more loved if we um, are more regular sexual intimacy mm-hmm. and um, that would look like X amount of times per week. I would feel much more loved by you if you would engage in that with me. Is that, are you allowed to say that? Is that manipulative? Is that seeing it as a way to like, are you taking rather than sharing? Like, I could see it going both ways. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you're telling your person what you need to feel loved, but at the same time, now you're putting that on them to um, really deliver. And it's like, well, then I guess you don't love me if you don't if you don't want to choose to do this. What if that's not? Right. I, right. It's just really that's really tricky. It's a lot of pressure to put on somebody. But I've heard it said. Oh, I know. Yeah, I I've heard it said too. And that that's the worst part about the love languages thing is that what was intended to be a way of you figuring out how better to love other people became a way of telling people how better to love you. Right. Um, the love languages was, well, Hey, my love language is this. And so if you really loved me, you would do these things, which is unfortunately another way of saying to a person, um, I'm using you to feel loved. I'm not loving you. I'm using you so that I feel loved. Now, in a yeah, in a healthy covenantal relationship, a husband and wife should be able to talk with one another and say, "Hey, I feel loved when we do this." But so we're we're saying primarily like it's the guy saying that like I would feel loved if we engage in sexual mm-hmm. intimacy more regularly. If the wife cannot say, "I feel loved when you don't pressure me." to do this on a regular scheduled basis. If she can't say that, then he's not being loving. He's using this language of love in order to get something out of her that he wants, right? In that book I mentioned earlier, The Great Sex Rescue, she has a a great question of, of men. She says, when men say, my wife won't engage in sex with me, she asks them, well, are you good at it? And they're like, well, what do you mean? She's like, well, are you any good at it? Why would she Mm -hmm. want to if you're not any good at it? If you don't care for her and love her and actually please her in the way she, in the way she's designed, if instead you're just like, you have to do this because this is what makes me feel loved. Yeah. So, well, then why would she want to? Why don't you go be a man mm-hmm. and learn to be good at this instead of just taking um, because you say, well, yeah, this, is, yeah. this is what it means to love me. So anyway, in, in a relationship, yeah, I think a husband and wife should be able to say, I would... I would feel closer. I would feel more intimate with you if we engaged in this more regularly. And a wife should yeah. be able to, assuming that's the husband, and a wife should be able to say, yeah, let's meet in the middle. Let's talk about that. Let's figure it out. Here's what makes me feel loved and more interested in engaging with you sexually. Now, if the guy, uh, I want to make sure I say this too, if the guy is saying this and it comes across more like, hey, if you don't meet my need at least three times a week, I'm probably going to look at porn. That's not loving at all. That is obviously contractual and completely using his wife's body to simply meet his own sinful physical need or meet his physical need in a sinful way. That is not covenantal. That is not bodily union uh, in the way that, that scripture 
paints is the you know the beautiful picture of what sexuality married sex can be mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i have a feeling you're going to be um talking a lot more about this we've got three more weeks ahead of us so just tell us where we're going yeah. next week yeah Okay, so next week we are going to look specifically at the passage in Matthew 5. Um, so Jesus starts with the don't commit adultery, which is, you know, don't do, don't, don't do, it. adultery is, you know, don't uh, unite bodily with someone you're not united with in all of life, especially if that person is united with someone else in a whole life way. So there's that. He says, I affirm that, but... There's a whole lot more going on here. When you, he says, it's especially directed at males. When you look at another man's wife with a lustful intent, an intent with an intent to possess her sexually, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. So he's saying, look, the, what you do with your body is important. But if you're simply physically restraining yourself, but you're not spiritually changed, then... Mm. You're, you're no better off than someone who is engaging in all of this uh, physical stuff. And you said um, he, Jesus was specifically talking to men. So does that mean that like women get a week off then like we're off the hook this weekend? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Totally off the hook. Yeah. Um, okay. Adultery is fine. Fine for women. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, of course not. <laughs> just, you, primarily you said so much about like <laughs> men and I want to make it clear like hey women can struggle with yeah. these things as well and like this is oh, absolutely not just a yeah. man's issue yep and i'll try to make sure to, to make that clear this week and it so that's what we're going to talk about this week and then the following week will be about how uh paul especially worked out in the churches um, that you know these brand new churches in pagan gentile areas where sex is uh, a huge thing and totally fallen where he worked out this kind of sexual ethic in those contexts because that has a lot to say for uh, where we live now. Okay, super. Thanks, Joy. I appreciate your time. And I look forward to more questions next week. Yeah. Keep them coming, guys. Yes, that's right. Keep texting in those questions because even if you've thought of more things yeah. while we were talking today or while you're listening to this uh, episode, text in those questions uh, because uh, it's super helpful for us to know what you're thinking and wondering about so we can address it more directly. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Cut for Time. If you wish to submit questions to our pastors following their sermon, you can email them to podcast at faithliveitout.org or text them into our Faith Church texting number, and we'll do our best to cover it in the week's episode. If this conversation blessed you in any way, we encourage you to share it with others. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week.